Sneaking the Sound Waves, An Evening with Dame Vera Lynn, November 1984, by Ike Zimbel, read by the author. Sometime in the fall of 1984, I was told that I was slated to do a concert for Dame Vera Lynn in the round at the London, Ontario Gardens Arena. I was also handed a crude sketch of what the PA would look like, flown over the stage on our fly rig of the day. This consisted of two massive aluminum beams called strongbacks, supporting a platform with our standard concert PA stacked and strapped on top of it. That system consisted of our own designed 15-inch folded horn subs and 12-inch horn-loaded mid-range cabinets, and community radial horns with Alltech drivers topped with Electrovoice ST350A tweeters. I took one look at the drawing and said, Nope, I'm not doing that. But I was still doing the gig, so I set about designing my own rig. Figuring the Configuring First, some background information. Dame Vera Lynn was the voice of World War II for virtually all service veterans of the Commonwealth countries, England, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc. Her popular songs, We'll Meet Again, and There'll Be Blues Birds Over, The White Cliffs of Dover, and many others, were the soundtrack that many had danced, fought, and if they were lucky enough, came home to. Second, I had spent the summer of 84 doing an Ontario-wide arena tour a piece of thinly disguised provincial government propaganda called the Bicentennial Showcase that was truly horrible enough that it may well get its own road story here at some point in the future. There were many reasons why it was horrible, but my main issue was trying to get a decent sound in mostly empty hockey arenas. The, it'll sound better when the kids fill the seats thing, really was a thing back then, and we couldn't fill the seats. The crazy thing was... We had a cast that could have filled every one of those arenas, but none of their names were on the montage-style promo poster because the government would have had to pay them all more money if they were named. The PA for that tour was our first attempt at a four-way all-in-one cabinet, two of those per side, and two flown Centerville cabinets. I'd designed the rigging for the Centerville cabinets, a pair of EV PI-1503s, which became the first flown loudspeakers in the company's inventory. Now at first blush, these permanent installation versions of EV's popular S-1503, which were made of particle board or maybe MDF, or as I like to put it, hope and good intentions, were not a good choice for anything to be flown. However, I added internal steel angle bracket bracing to all four corners, which was then tied to the rigging track, the same stuff that's used for load bars and straps and semi-trailers, and no, I wouldn't use it again. And then, the entire box was wrapped with marine fiberglass, so they were plenty strong enough to be suspended as single hangs. So, armed with the knowledge that our larger PA offerings sounded awful in an arena for a family-style show, and the fact that I had two cabinets that I knew I could hang from the box truss we were going to fly over the in-the-round stage, which was really a rectangle in the middle of the arena floor, I set about coming up with the rest of the rig. This ended up consisting of 10 Yamaha S250X two-way cabinets, which had two 8-inch and one 1-inch high frequency to fly from the truss, 
two stock EV S1503s that I suspended with three inch load straps and the aforementioned two PI1503 rigged boxes. The Yamaha cabinets flew from yokes and clamps with eight of them bolted together in pairs of two with more angle bracket. All those boxes had passive crossovers. Amplifiers were probably QSC A series and a pair of 3500s, as I was partial to QSC and none of these were permanently assigned to any of our PA racks at the time. Control would have been a graphic EQ or two and probably a couple of compressors. I don't recall the console, but it would probably have been either a Yamaha M916 or a Soundtracks SR24-4-2, which was a flat, built into a road case type desk. The latter console was quite nice for the day, clean and quiet with musical sounding EQ. For those who don't know, soundtracks evolved into Digico sometime in the last 1000 years or so. It's never straightforward. The drill for the gig was the same as the Roy Clark show that I detailed in a previous article. Drive out the night before, get a hotel room, and be at the venue for an 8 a.m. call. When I did walk into the arena, I was instantly glad to see that I had kiboshed the proposed PA on a flown platform idea, as the time clock was already hanging over the stage, and flying the platform would have been A, incredibly difficult, and B, would have left very little clearance over the stage. We had an efficient local crew, so the load-in went smoothly. However, when we began assembling the box truss that both audio and lighting were there to hang from, there was a snag. At the time, we were using a folding triangular truss, probably Thomas brand, which was great for truck packs since it folded flat, but it required the use of spreader bars to hold the two folding parts in position, and unfortunately, the lampies had forgotten to put the bars on the truck. This little error had the potential to leave us dead in the water for a minimum of two hours, assuming they could get a hold of somebody to go to the shop and drive them out to us on a weekend. Of course, I wasn't happy with this possibility, so after looking the situation over, I came up with a workaround. Truss corners were either not a thing in 1984 or we simply didn't own any, so the plan for this rectangular box truss was to fly the two short end sections and then suspend the longer sides underneath. The two sections of truss were to be joined together with double cheeseboro clamps, four in each corner. My plan was to float the end sections high enough to get the sides underneath them, and then use the clamps to A, clamp them together as planned, and B, spread the angle sections to the proper width while we waited for the spreader bars to arrive. In case you're having trouble picturing this, the end sections were flown angle side up like the letter A, and the side sections were flown angle side down like a letter V, so the two flat sides met each other where the clamps joined them. My recollection of how this worked out is that the lighting folks and the riggers did such a good job of approximating the correct degree of angle that when the spreader bars did finally show up, they all just clipped into place without having to adjust the width. In any case, this workaround allowed us to float the truss at working height and cost us almost no time at all, so the setup went along pretty much as planned. I flew the PA with a loose cluster of five of the Yamaha boxes in a 2-1-2 configuration in the center of the long sides, 
and the EV boxes on the ends of the truss. I noticed from the photos that I took at the time that even back then, I favored hanging boxes that were tasked with near-fill coverage horned down, something I still do today. Because the show was in the round, there wasn't a logical place for front of house, so we ended up with all three control positions, front of house, monitors, and lighting, side by side on one of the players' benches on one side of the arena. I don't recall much of the rest of the day, but I would have EQ'd the PA and set levels to balance the mixture of boxes and locations. I also don't remember incorporating any delays into the setup, although I know at that point we owned a Yamaha YDD2600, which was one of the first multi-output alignment delays, and a dozen or so D1500s that we had purchased for the Papal Mass back in September, and yes, that'll be another article. I do know, however, that in November 84, I was still about eight months away from my own personal, quote, discovery of the Haas effect, so delay probably wasn't on my radar. Musically, there was a grand piano up on the deck with the lid down, so it probably had one or two PZM microphones taped to the lid, as was the practice of the day. Next to the stage, on a low riser, was a small pit band consisting of bass, keyboards, and a cocktail drum kit. There was a wireless microphone, probably a Telex system, for Dame Vera's vocal, as well as a hardwired spare that may have been an AKG C535. We definitely didn't see or hear her before the show. All's well. The crowd was probably 100% veterans and their spouses, with many of the veterans in their uniforms, a stirring sight. Comedian Jimmy Kennedy opened the show. I still remember one of his jokes almost 40 years later. Mother Superior and a young nun take the convent car into town to buy some supplies. On the way home, they experience car trouble and consequently get home very late and find the convent closed and locked for the night. Undaunted, they decide to scale the walls. Halfway through this exercise, the young nun exclaims, Oh, Mother Superior, I feel like a commando! To which her nibs replies, don't be so foolish, girl. Where are you going to find a commando at this time of night? There was a brief intermission following Jimmy's set, towards the end of which Dame Vera's husband-slash-manager limped over to our position on the player's bench, wearing a beret and a Royal Air Force blue blazer, and said to us, If she's not comfortable up there, she'll do 20 to 25 minutes, sing the songs that they're all expecting to hear, and call it a night. If she is comfortable, there's no telling how long she'll go. He then produced four crisp $20 bills and proceeded to slide one across the boards to each of us. This was the second of two times that I've been tipped prior to a show, so I can happily say that after 42 years in this business, I am up $40 on tips. I'm also happy to report that Dame Vera took the stage and stayed there so long that I was beginning to seriously worry about the battery in her microphone. She was 67 at the time and had more than 50 years of hits to choose from. And the sound? Amazing, if I must say so myself. It was certainly the best-sounding arena show that I'd done that year and still ranks as one of my best ever. The show was a pleasure to mix, with the only sonic issue being a squeaky hi-hat pedal. And yes, I did get into the roadie crouch and run out there with a can of WD-40 to try to fix it. And no, it didn't work. Why did it sound so good? 
My theory that I've long held is that instead of moving air, as some people like to call the art of doing sound, sometimes you kind of have to sneak the sound waves through the air while moving as little air as possible. Put another way, keeping the volume low enough and the frequency spectrum somewhat constrained to avoid exciting the room's acoustics. About 10 years later, when I was back managing the company, I had quit not long after this gig for a myriad of reasons. I was talking to a potential client on the phone when he mentioned that his business was promoting concerts for veterans. I told him about mixing the Dame Vera Lynn show, and he said, That was you? That was my show, and to this day it's still the best-sounding one we've ever done. Further discussion revealed that, not long after this show, he had shifted his focus to doing these shows in the U.S. instead of Canada, and had used other providers because he assumed we couldn't work in the States. I assured him that that wasn't the case, handed him off to one of our account managers, and we ended up doing several more shows for him. So, doing the job right did lead to some repeat business. It just took a decade for it to happen. Longtime audio professional Ike Zimbel is a top freelance wireless frequency coordinator and technician based in Toronto. Reach him via LinkedIn.